Hi and welcome. I'm Greg Oberst, and this podcast is the first of a three-part series titled Surrendering the Sword, the true story of Nobuo Fujita, the only enemy pilot to bomb the United States mainland by fixed-wing aircraft in the history of the country. Part one of this series, The Attack. Part two, Fujita's Return. And in part three, The Surrender. And now, part one, The Attack. On September 9, 1942, as the United States and Japan engaged in war in the Pacific Theater, an Imperial Japanese Navy I-Class submarine, the I-25, immense at more than 350 feet long, yet stealthy and black, surfaced in the pre-dawn darkness just a few miles off the southern Oregon coastline. Emerging on deck, Japanese Navy crewmen quickly went to work assembling an aircraft from parts stowed in a waterproof hangar on the deck of the sub. Satisfied that the aircraft was airworthy and that his 400-year-old samurai sword was properly secured under his seat, Chief Warrant Officer and Pilot Nobuo Fujita signaled his readiness from the cockpit to submarine captain Meiji Tagami. With his submarine pointed into the wind, Captain Tagami didn't hesitate to give his command to launch. With that, Fujita and his navigator and spotter Soji Okuda were hurled down the deck of the I-25 and catapulted into the air. Even with his single engine at full throttle, Fujita struggled to gain altitude and airspeed. That came as no surprise to Fujita, a veteran flyer who knew full well that this takeoff would be unlike any other in his career as a Japanese Navy aviator. Typically used for reconnaissance, the single-engine Geta floatplane was, on this mission, carrying heavy cargo, two 200-pound incendiary bombs. After a few white-knuckle moments, Fujita was able to get the altitude and airspeed he needed to bank his aircraft to the east toward the Oregon coast. Fujita and Okuda flew almost directly over the small town of Brookings, Oregon. But shrouded in fog and only in the light of the early dawn, they saw little of it. In the distance, Fujita could see his target, the Siskiyou National Forest, the peaks of which he could see rising above the fog like islands in the sky. One mountain in particular had Fujita's attention, Mount Emily, an impressive coast range peak pushing to almost 3,000 feet into the air. Now, eight miles inland, Fujita began a long, slow circle around Mount Emily, and while doing so, released the first of his two incendiary bombs into the dense forest below. Moments later, he released the second. Bombs away, Nobuo Fujita became the first and still the only enemy pilot to bombard the United States mainland by fixed-wing aircraft. Fujita's mission, historic as it was, is nevertheless one of the most unknown and untold stories of World War II and American history. Now, why drop bombs on such a remote part of the United States? Well, to get the answer, you need to go back to December 7, 1941, the day of the Japanese surprise attack on American forces in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. That event brought the United States into the war with Japan. 
Among the many counter-offensive measures taken by the United States was one executed on April 18, 1942, the day the United States and Doolittle's raiders surprised Japan with an attack on its mainland. Though inflicting only marginal damage on Japanese forces around Tokyo and other locations, the attack did much more damage to the Japanese morale. Now, the Japanese knew the Americans could do the unthinkable, reach their mainland by long-range aircraft. A huge blow to an empire that once thought itself impervious at home. Fujita himself was in port at Yokosuka, Japan, when the Doolittle's B-25s arrived. The I-25 was in dock there for repairs and refurbishing between missions. Fujita and crewmen quickly jumped aboard the I-25 and sank it right at dockside to dodge successfully the attack. So, by the summer of 1942, it was the Japanese that wanted to send a statement to the Americans about their own ability to attack the enemy mainland. Now, the Japanese didn't have long-range bombers, but they did have long-range submarines, the I-25 among them. Then it was Nobuo Fujita himself who had some months earlier suggested the idea of using his Geta reconnaissance float plane as a bomber when the opportunity presented itself. At the suggestion of his immediate superiors, Nobuo wrote up the idea and sent it off to high command. And then he forgot about it. Until one day in July of 1942, to his surprise, he was summoned to Imperial Headquarters in Tokyo. There, Fujita met with top war planners, including, in yet another surprise to Nobuo, Prince Takamatsu, the younger brother of the Emperor of Japan, Hirohito. Though Fujita doubted the prince knew him, Nobuo certainly knew of the prince and, in fact, had flown in formation with the prince when both had been in flight training some years earlier. Also in the room was a Japanese Navy officer who had just recently returned from duty as Japanese vice consul stationed in Seattle, Washington. With top Japanese Navy brass now assembled before a wide-eyed Japanese Navy pilot, the group closed ranks around charts of the United States mainland that had been seized in the Battle of Wake Island. Fujita was informed that he would indeed be assigned duty to bomb the American mainland with his Geta float plane. Nobuo's imagination was racing with possible targets, war plants, navy ships in Seattle, Portland, San Francisco. Fujita watched as the former vice consul slid his finger on the map from Seattle down the west coast of the United States and then stopping at what looked to Nobuo like nothing more than forest land. You will bomb here, Fujita. Nobuo was taken aback. He thought, why would you want to bomb trees? An explanation quickly followed. Now, understand that the Japanese presence off the west coast of the United States in early World War II was no secret. The U.S. Army Air Corps patrolled regularly up and down the coast looking for Japanese subs. Indeed, the I-25 used its surface battery gun to shell Fort Stevens near Astoria, Oregon in June of 1942. Damage was minor. The I-25 and other Japanese submarines were also on the prowl for merchant ships or U.S. Navy vessels that might be part of the supply chain to the Pacific Fleet. But that the Japanese had reconnaissance aircraft that could be launched off the deck of submarines, that was largely unknown to the U.S. military. 
So, Fujita was handed the secret mission. Launch from the I-25 off the coast of southern Oregon, drop incendiary bombs into the forest, start a major forest fire which, theoretically, would draw American forces stationed around the Pacific Rim back to protect the west coast of the United States, thereby opening up a better opportunity for the advancement of the Japanese forces around the Pacific. The mission would also serve as a message to the Americans. The Japanese, too, could reach your homeland. So with that understanding, Fujita was all in. The mission, of course, was top secret and revealed to the rest of the crew of the I-25 only after they set sail for the west coast of the United States in August of 1942. Back up on the summit of Mount Emily, the first light of that September 9 morning brought Forest Service lookout Howard Gardner to his first duty of the day, check for forest fires. He didn't expect to see much. Not only was the fire index low due to unseasonably damp weather lately, but the dense fog was still shrouding just about everything below his lookout tower, leaving nothing but a few of the higher peaks to glance over. Something else, though, caught his attention. Something he heard. What was that? Sounds like an old jalopy in the distance. Strangely, it was coming from the air. Sure enough, in a few seconds, Howard Gardner had his sights on a low-flying aircraft above the fog that looked to be taking a long, slow loop around the mountain. To Howard, the small airplane also looked utterly harmless, and it eventually turned to the west and flew out of sight. Still, all aircraft sightings are to be reported. So Howard followed protocol and radioed his sighting to the Gold Beach Ranger Station with little reason to believe that what he saw was nothing more than somebody's homemade hobby. Some miles east, near the top of Bear Wallow, 18-year-old Forest Service summer lookout Keith Johnson was clearing trail among the trees below his station when he heard the same odd sound, the sound of an old car up in the air. Out of instinct, Keith turned his eyes toward the sky, but through the fog and the trees there was nothing to see. All he could do was listen until the sound disappeared. Then he went back to clearing trail. Now with two bombs away, Nobuo Fujita finished up his loop around Mount Emily, and with the light of dawn now exposing his aircraft, turned his slow-moving Geta bomber to the west, out to the sea, and to a rendezvous with the I-25. Touching down in the choppy water of the Pacific Ocean, Fujita taxied his float plane up to the I-25, where crewmen used a crane to hoist the aircraft back onto the deck. There in the morning light, time was of the essence. A giant enemy submarine isn't so stealthy on the ocean's surface. As the aircraft was quickly disassembled and stowed, Fujita and Okuda reported to Captain Tagami. Bombs away, and fire started. But their celebration was short. Patrolling overhead in a Hudson A-29 out of McCord Field near Tacoma, Washington, was Captain Gene H. Doherty, who spotted the I-25 just as the big dark sub was diving. Spotters on the I-25 saw the American patrol aircraft. As battle stations rang out, depth charges from the A-29 detonated all around the submarine, but with no direct hits. Concussion from the blast, though, did cause minor damage to the I-25. 
Captain Tagami was able to direct repairs to his sub while sitting on the ocean floor off the coast of Port Orford, Oregon. It was just about noon when Howard Gardner from his Mount Emily post stepped out for yet another 360-degree scan of the vast and dense Siskiyou National Forest. This time, something stopped him from making a full circle. Smoke. A column rising tall just off the mountain to the east. Wheeler Ridge. Gardner was on the radio to the Gold Beach Ranger Station in seconds. Smoke spotted. Howard took an azimuth reading to confirm the direction. To his experienced eye, it looked to him like a four- to five-mile hike was in his very near future. Howard packed a firefighting kit, some rations, and, as instructed by Gold Beach headquarters, set off down the mountain and through the hilly terrain. Meanwhile, Keith Johnson was returning from trail-clearing duty when he reported in to Gold Beach Ranger Station. He was stunned to learn he'd be heading right back out to a potential fire. Scanning from his lookout, Keith could now see the smoke as well and took the much-needed second azimuth reading that confirmed the exact location and distance. Keith would have a much longer hike, about eight and a half miles, and he'd have more to carry than Howard Gardner. Along with his rations and firefighting kit, which included his trusty Pulaski, which is a combination axe and hoe, he packed an S-radio. Several miles into his hike, Johnson picked up Gardner's path through trail markings that Howard had left behind. Sensing at one point that he might have caught up with Gardner, Johnson stopped and yelled for his fellow Forest Service lookout. Howard! There was a reply, but Keith had trouble determining from where it came. He looked all around for Howard before realizing it came from above him. Gardner, the expert woodsman that he was, had climbed a tree to get a fix on the fire. Back on the ground, Gardner told Johnson he could see the smoke just another half mile down the slope. The two men descended onto the fire together. Once on the site, Howard and Keith could see that there were no flames, just smoldering embers covering a very limited area, maybe a tenth of a square mile circumference. For the moment, the cause of the fire wasn't top of mind, Putting out the hottest of the embers was first priority, and the two men went about that work. After a few moments, Howard and Keith could see that this fire, amid the damp forest duff, wasn't going anywhere. Keith stopped his work and went about the task of setting up the radio and reporting to Gold Beach headquarters that they were on site and that the fire, such as it was, was under control. Howard Gardner had a moment to survey the entire fire site he noticed what looked like a crater at the center of the fire, and then smoldering metal fragments, thermite pellets, scattered in all directions and burning hot. What the heck? As Howard and Keith continued to work the embers, more metal fragments were exposed, and then larger pieces of metal. Clearly, these were fragments of a bomb. How could this be? As late afternoon approached, Gardner was ordered back to his lookout on Mount Emily. Johnson had instructions to keep working the embers and spend the night on site. The next day, September 10, 1942, Keith Johnson welcomed Fred Flynn, the Forest Service District Chief, and other Forest Service personnel to the site. More metal fragments were uncovered, and some 
much to the astonishment of the crew, had Japanese markings on them. It wasn't long before the FBI and U.S. Army personnel were on the bomb site. Together, the crew determined that the bomb was indeed of Japanese origin and that it had to have come from an aircraft. Suddenly, a realization. The men weren't just fighting a small fire. They were fighting in a very large war. Could this bomb have come from that silly-sounding aircraft sighted the day before circling Mount Emily? Had to be. But where did such a small aircraft come from? Where would it take off, land? How could it carry a bomb and go almost undetected? A few days later, Keith Johnson closed up his Barrow Wallow lookout and was all set to go back to college in Nebraska. Instead, he was sent to another lookout for an extended stay at Chetco Peak. But his duty was less about clearing trails and looking for fires, and more about exploring the nearby lakes to see if perhaps the Japanese had somehow managed to set up a base on one such lake from which they might launch float planes with bombs. Johnson found plenty of lakes, but none that could accommodate such an operation. Back out at sea, some two weeks later aboard the I-25, Nobuo Fujita and navigator Soji Okuda were preparing for another bombing run. This time, the mission would be carried out completely under the cover of darkness, a much more dangerous undertaking for the flyers, especially when it came time to rendezvous with the I-25 at the end of the flight. On this second bombing mission, the I-25 was positioned a bit further up the south coast, about 60 nautical miles north of the launch point of the first mission. Now they were off Cape Blanco. Fujita and Captain Tsugami were amazed that the beacon on the Cape was still flashing even after their earlier bombing run. Fujita was all too happy to use the landmark as his guide, flying over the Cape's steep white banks and then inland to the Sixes River watershed. With two bombs away, Fujita turned back to the coastline, at which point he cut the engine on his Geta so that he could glide silently over the beach until safely away from the coastline. Then engine on. At the rendezvous point, the I-25 was nowhere to be found. The darkness didn't help. Fujita circled the rendezvous point while Okuda double-checked the coordinates. It flashed in Nobuo's head that his navigation equipment had been acting up a bit lately. Also, it wasn't impossible that the I-25 itself was off course, less likely though given Captain Tagami's expertise. With gas running low, both Fujita and Okuda knew the protocol should they never find the sub. Land the aircraft, sink the secret plans, and scuttle the bomber. Fujita would then shoot and kill Okuda, and then himself. Fearing the worst, Fujita and Okuda scanned the darkness for any sign of the I-25. Nothing. Another white-knuckle minute passed. Then... Nobuo noticed something in the water, something just barely illuminated by the small amount of starlight, a sheen. Could that be oil? Fujita figured that had to be man-made and turned to follow the sheen. He could see it start to narrow, and eventually he could see it leading right to the I-25. After confirmation signals were exchanged with the I-25, Fujita landed his bomber, taxied to the submarine, and was hoisted to the deck. 
Once aboard, Fujita reported to Captain Tsugami that two bombs had been deployed and that the I-25 was leaking oil. Back on Cape Blanco and around the town of Sixes, Oregon, ear witnesses that morning remember hearing an aircraft, odd-sounding again like an old jalopy. But after a search, the Forest Service, military personnel, and the FBI claim that no bombs were ever found, no fires were started. By then, however, the U.S. government, based on evidence and witnesses, had pretty much concluded that the Japanese were launching these aerial bombing runs by submarine, a capability that the U.S. military was still trying to get their arms around. Regardless, the U.S. military did their level best to censor the news of both bombing runs. As for the I-25, there were two more incendiary bombs on board, but there would be no more aerial bombing runs. The missions were just too dangerous for both the flyers and the submarine. The I-25 would finish its deployment patrolling for U.S. merchant and Navy ships. It attacked and sank two U.S. oil tankers and, mistakenly, a friendly Soviet sub before returning to Japan in October of 1942. After another few days on Chetco Peak, Keith Johnson came down off the mountain for good. Keith went back to Nebraska to college and then joined the Navy as an officer, served aboard ships in World War II, commanded ships during the Korean conflict and in the Vietnam War, and then, in the 1970s, met up twice with a certain fellow Navy man, a Japanese Navy pilot, by the name of Nobuo Fujita. That story, and the story of Fujita's highly controversial return to the United States in 1962, to Brookings, at the invitation of a local civic group, to come in part two of this series. Thanks for listening. I'm Greg Oberst.